0: Let's, let's head into chapter 12 here of Revelation. Revelation 12 is sometimes identified as being the key to the entire book of Revelation in some ways. Uh, it starts off a new series of visions that uh, aren't going to end until chapter 15, verse 4. 11, 19, where we ended last week, that wasn't only, or where we ended two weeks ago. That wasn't only the conclusion of the seven trumpets cycle, the words it uses let us know that we're beginning a new cycle. When we read in verse 19, the second part of it, there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. And each time we've seen that word formula, they've been added to, they've intensified. And so it lets us know, okay, we're heading into a new cycle of of divisions here. And so you can track the divisions of this section in this new cycle from 12.1 to 15.4, By noticing, you can mark it off, phrases like, uh, and I saw, or behold, these reveal seven specific sections, which makes sense since other parts of the book have also been divided, as we've seen, into seven sections. Each one of those introduced by these clear introductory words or formulas. We've had seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, right? So chapter 12 begins a new vision, but it's going to continue to develop the previous themes of the book. John digs more deeply here now into this spiritual conflict that is raging in real time between um, the church and the world. This is what's been um, developing progressively through chapters 1 through 11. The seven letters talked about the spiritual pressure on Christians to compromise that will come from both outside and from inside the church, unfortunately. The seven seals revealed that the spiritual forces of evil are unleashed against both believers and unbelievers. Uh, They're all going to be suffering in some sense in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ. The seven trumpets demonstrate God's judgment being poured out on rebellious humanity. But in the midst of all this talk, there have been these uh, sections or parentheses that also reveal that God's people will be spiritually protected throughout all these woes on the earth, So as, as judgment is poured out through these this preliminary judgment, through seals and trumpets and these things, Christians are here on the earth. They're going to feel the, the residual effect of that. They're shrapnel in light of this great conflict that's raging. But again, the point has been building that, that listen, this is the way it's going to be. But in the midst of this, I will be with you. You are sealed. You are measured. You're protected. I won't leave you to the wolves. Chapters 12 through 22 now tell the same story as chapters 1 through 11, but explain it all in greater detail, the things the first chapters have only introduced or implied. The vision tells us we're going deeper into the core of this conflict with the appearance of two signs in heaven here in chapter 12. The vi- the, 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 only three times in all his visions in Revelation does John call anything signs. Two of them are here in chapter 12 at the center point of the book right the third is the seven angels with seven final plagues which will come later in fifteen one. when we want to know when we look at the raging of the world and we want to know why things are the way they are why is it so hard why is there so much that is awful and so much suffering and why is it so difficult to walk by faith the truest answer the ultimate answer lies in the text tonight In Revelation 12, all of that is ultimately because of Satan, the devil, the ancient dragon, the texts call him. There have been quick references to him as we've seen so far in 2.13, 6.8, 9.11. The devil is kind of the mad scientist stirring the pot behind all the trials and persecutions of the saints in the world. He is the one that will unleash the beast and the false prophet. The harlot Babylon in Revelation is also... The devil's servants and notice what John has done up to this point he's presented all four of those figures the devil the beast the false prophet and the harlot rising in that order in chapters 1 through 11 but then meeting their demise now in reverse order in chapters 12 through 20 to show that the devil is the initiator from first to last all of this resistance from earth to God and his people he's behind all of it So chapter 12 introduces the second half of the book of Revelation. What we learn tonight, again, however, is that the very powerful devil is still not autonomous. He and all his servants can only do their damage within the times God has allowed and prescribed. Verse 6 and verse 14, we'll see tonight. Chapter 13, verse 5. This is one of the reasons things are so bad so often, because the devil is furious. He's damaged He's dying, he's been overcome, and he is raging. He knows he's on borrowed time. His decisive defeat has already been set in motion by Christ's resurrection. The time of the devil's raging through his agents in the world, however, is limited by the sovereign and victorious God. Again, we'll see that tonight or in the the weeks to come in verses 7 through 17. But the trouble or troubles of the church in the world. They're not so heavy or so violent and terrible because Satan is just too powerful for us, but because he's already been overthrown and he knows he can do nothing about it. He knows his future. Trust me. He knows the scripture, right? The snake knows the scripture and he wields it horribly, but he does wield it, but he's already been overthrown. He knows he can't win. So he's going to take out his anger on those whom God loves. In the world, he does all that he can. He will do all that he can, but he's not going to win. He'll never prevail over the church in an ultimate way, no matter how it appears. Because remember, we don't judge by appearances how things appear are not how things necessarily are. So we need to know, beloved, as we study these things, that behind our persecutors and oppressors as we go out on mission in the world stands the devil and his agents who have already been defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ. But also then to compromise as believers is not just compromising with the world. To compromise with the world is to compromise with Satan himself. That is meant to shock us out of any spiritual complacency we might be feeling. The majority of chapter 12 portrays the destiny of believers throughout the age of the church told through repeated allusions here to the Old Testament. And and one more word here about structure before we begin the structure of Revelation is key to understanding it properly. Chapter 12 is divided into three sections. This chapter, these are temporally and thematically parallel to one another in order to tell the same story three times from different perspectives. Verses 1 through 6, verses 7 through 12, verses 13 through 17 are basically the same. In that, they describe the protection of God's people through the devil's raging and the trials that that brings upon them. There are three segments in verses 5 and 7 to 9 and 10 through 12 are describing the same victory over the devil. The first and third sections put a frame around that middle section as the middle section is the center for interpretation and the theological foundation for the whole passage. So we can conclude tonight that the main point of chapter 12 is is the protection of God's people against Satan since the decisive victory over Satan has been won through the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. John writes to encourage us to persevere in our witness even though the cosmic conflict between God and the devil that brings us difficulty and persecution in this world continues. So let me pray and we'll get through what we can. Father, I thank you for... Your word, I thank you for your grace and your salvation. I thank you for the victory that has been won and secured by your son, Jesus Christ, through his life and death and resurrection and ascension back to you, Father. We praise the reigning, the resurrected Savior tonight. It is he who speaks to us in these pages. And so, Father, open our ears to hear, our eyes to understand. We ask and pray these things. I ask for your help. For the sake of clarity, in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Let me read the first six verses here of chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns And on his heads, seven diadems, or crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Okay, a woman appears as a great sign in verse 1, and then another sign, a great red dragon, is seen in verse 3. The conflict between the woman and the dragon is the focus of the action, so to speak, in chapter 12. It begins with this dragon waiting to consume the son to whom the woman is about to give birth in verse 4. That conflict ends with its frustrated attempts to destroy her, And the rest of her children. In verse 17, again, we have two complementary visions in total in this chapter. They give symbolic commentary on the same battle and its sequel, so to speak, representing the totality of this cosmic conflict between the devil and the Lord, which is played out in real time here on earth. And the first vision... The good guys, so to speak, and the preparation for battle are described in some detail in verses 1 through 4. You saw that. The battle is then viewed in the blink of an eye from an earthly perspective in verse 5. Its sequel is stated in verse 6 in the flight of the woman into the wilderness for protection for 1260 days. The second vision opens in verses 7 through 9 with the heavenly perspective on this same battle. as well as heavenly commentary on how significant it is in verses 10 through 12. Then the same sequel here to that initial battle, the woman's flight into the wilderness for protection for three and a half years, that's how it's stated, 1260 days, is given in greater detail in verses 13 to 17. The dragon is defeated twice, is what we're seeing here, and twice we see his frustration at not being able to destroy the mother of the Messiah or... The Messiah this woman introduced in verse 1 is a picture of the faithful community the one that existed before and after the coming of Christ we will see this I hope that we should identify her as that is based on the Old Testament precedent of those words the Sun the moon and 11 stars metaphorically representing Jacob his wife and 11 tribes of Israel from Genesis 37, 9, these 11 bow down to Joseph, who represents the 12th tribe. Restored Israel, then identified as the church in Revelation, is described in a similar way in Isaiah 60, 19 through 20. So there's precedent for understanding these terms that way. And a woman often represents the picture of a restored Israel in Isaiah 52, 2, 54, 1 through 6, 61, 10. 62, 1 through 5. In that last text from Isaiah, chapter 62, in verses 3 and 5, he prophesies that restored Israel will be like a bride wearing a crown. The brightness of her appearance here in verse 1, it reflects the same brightness we've already seen in Revelation in the face of Jesus Christ back in 1.16. Her glory is the reflected glory of Christ. So just as the sun, moon, and stars appear very far from earth and immune from destruction by any earthly force. So also the true Israel from the Old and New Testaments is ultimately indestructible on earth because her identity is also in the heavens. Later in verses 7-8, through the mention of Michael uh, is Israel's heavenly representative and protector. It also points to this idea later... In verses 11 through 17, the fact that this woman represents both the old and new covenant communities will become even clearer since her offspring is not only Christ, but is also the community of those who follow him. The crown on her head is actually defined in the best way for us in the text of Revelation itself. The crown pictures the share that the saints have in the kingship of Jesus Christ and the reward of the true people of God throughout the ages will receive for their victory over all the opposition to their faith, the persecution, the temptations to compromise, the deception, etc., as we've seen in 2.10 and 3.11 and 4.4 and 4.10, etc. The brightness of her appearance reflects the pure and powerful sunlight that arises from the glorious image of God and His Christ in 1.16 and 10.1 and 2.123 and 2.25. What she's described in verse 2 is crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. For this reason, by the way, most Catholic writers see this woman as Mary, the mother of Jesus. That's who they think she is. But the primary focus here isn't on the individual woman. The primary focus is on the community of faith that her messianic line ultimately produced as kingly offspring. Right? This isn't clear just in the language of verse 1 but also in what is said of her in the rest of the chapter. What's said about her, she's persecuted, she flees into the desert, she has other offspring, not just the Messiah, and these are described as faithful believers, as Christians. Her birth pains refer to the persecution the covenant community of believers faces in this world, as well as that of the Messianic line that they suffered during Old Testament times, and especially, especially the intertestamental period that led up to Christ's birth the agony she experiences here expresses the idea of persecution since that word literally means being tormented it's not just something you feel it's something that's imposed on her it's used in the new testament the same word to describe specifically the suffering christians endure of punishment and trial and persecution we see that form in matthew 8:29 mark 5:7 mark 6:48 luke 8:28 second 2 peter 2:8 2, remember We need to view Revelation as the capstone, if you will, of all biblical Revelation, of all biblical prophecy. And so we can't understand anything properly as it pertains to prophecy until we get to Revelation. It's going to define with clarity everything for us. The picture this paints of the woman for us is that this woman is being tormented. She's being punished, suffering as she tries to give birth. This fits with a picture of the Jewish community being persecuted in the period leading up to birth to, to the birth of Christ in particular. It was through suffering then that the people waited for the great deliverance the Messiah would bring in Luke 2:25 to 38. Our Lord Jesus compares the grief of his disciples, if you remember over his coming death. He compares that grief to a woman who is in labor and is about to give birth through sorrow in john sixteen nineteen through twenty two so in this view of revelation twelve two the disciples represent one mother, the messianic community in the midst of which Christ would be raised up and born in that sense through resurrection as we 'll see, and would also later present his people the resurrected Christ to the world but in verse 2 it is the first birth of Jesus that is in mind here not this later resurrection birth if you will that will come later think about you think about it like this the the harlot of revelation 17 is symbolic of the whole unbelieving community the opposite of her right this righteous woman that's presented in chapter 12 represents the whole believing Community. John's vision here has as its ultimate source the prophetic word of God that was spoken all the way back in Genesis 3, 14 through 16. If you remember this, after Eve's pain in childbirth, her seed would crush the head of the serpent. When we get to verse 17 here, it'll make that allusion explicit. That we know that's what we're, where all this is coming from, this terminology, that this woman represents God's covenant people is also shown in several parallels to the prophecies of Isaiah concerning Israel. Isaiah 7, 10 to 14, Isaiah 26, 17 to 27, 1, Isaiah 51, 2 through 11, and Isaiah 66, 7 through 10. Those last three passages from Isaiah that I mentioned, they relate the birth of this child to the end time restoration of Israel. I, I don't think we can view the woman as representing only A faithful remnant of Israel is living at the very end of history since the following verses show her symbolizing a believing community that extends from before the birth of Christ to at least the latter part of the first century A.D., verse 6 and verses 13 through 17. And also notice that the persecution in the following verse is not directed against a nation of believers and unbelievers, right? A mix. It's carried out on one pure community of faith. The second of John's two signs here, the great red dragon appears in verse 3. He has seven heads, ten horns, and on these seven heads are seven diadems. Without exception, the image of a dragon is used throughout the Old Testament to represent those evil kingdoms that persecute and oppose God's people. But even though there are several allusions here to this dragon um, as a nation like Egypt in Scripture... We'll see that. This this dragon is more than a metaphor for just an evil kingdom. This dragon also stands for the devil himself as the head representative of these evil kingdoms that are opposed to God and to his people. We'll see that in verse 9. We'll see it in chapter 20, verse 2, and verse 10. They'll make that explicit again. Satan himself is the force behind the wicked kingdoms that persecute and attempt to destroy god's people revelation 12 beloved we can view it as this the graphic depiction of the spiritual warfare paul was telling us we're involved in in ephesians chapter 6 for what that's worth just like the lamb's seven horns you notice this Satan is always perverting mimicking the seven heads and ten horns of the dragon emphasized for the dragon completeness only with the dragon This is the totality of oppressive power, abusive power, and the effect that has on the whole world. His ten horns are those of the beast, of Daniel's fourth beast in Daniel 7.7 and Daniel 7.24 that reappear on the beast in chapter 13, meaning the devil carries out his oppressive will against the church and the world through these kingly representatives, through these places of authority, on earth. He's red because he's oppressive. It's bloody. In seventeen three through six, the scarlet color of the harlot and the beast are linked directly with this woman who is drunk with the blood of the saints. All right, that's all that red imagery. Remember the second horse in Revelation six, four. He was red. That included the blood of the faithful in six, nine, and ten. Lastly he had seven diadems on his seven heads, representing Satan's false claims of sovereign and universal authority in opposition to the one who does actually possess those things, the true King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who also, in 1912 and 1921, wears many diadems. In fact, that similarity between those two descriptions in 12 and 19 show us there's a deliberate intention to contrast the two of them here. In verse 4, the dragon's tail sweeps down a third of the stars of heaven... Alluding to the prophecy of Daniel 8.10 <clears throat> where the end time enemy of God will throw some of the stars down to the earth. In Daniel 12.3 these stars are identified as God's people. Those being oppressed in the vision of Daniel 8.10 are also identified as the holy people in 8.24. But then in Daniel 10.20 and 21 and Daniel 12.1 it's angels that represent peoples in the heavenly realm. The stars then can represent israelite saints and not only angels the fact that that's possible is evident from daniel 12 3 where the righteous are compared to the brightness of the expanse of heaven like the stars forever and ever daniel 11 interprets the falling of some of the host of heaven and the stars and they're being trampled in eight we've seen that word in revelation 11 as representing the captivity of israel who will be delivered in the future. So what this text is telling us is that Israelite saints have their true identity in heaven before the divine throne to the degree that when they're persecuted and attacked and thrown down, the angels and God himself are also being attacked. That's what's behind this conflict. The immediate application by the way of Daniel 8:10 was clearly to the persecution of Israel by Antiochus Epiphanes in the 2nd century. B.C., but now that persecution, what was, what we were seeing there has intensified in John's vision to show the evil power behind the attacks of people like Antiochus, Satan himself. The main focus here is on the persecution of the faithful community immediately before the birth of the Messiah. Faithful Israelites right before his birth. But the terminology also encompasses other aspects of the Old Testament age. Herod's massacre of the infants, right, of Jewish babies. The early persecution of Christ himself in Luke chapter 4. But this oppression takes the form here of both persecution and attempts to deceive the faithful. That's also persecution. That's also uh, suffering. Daniel 8.10 and Daniel 22, 8.22-25. Uh, Daniel 11, 30-35. These stars in verse 4 have a very close relationship to the 12 stars back in verse 1. These falling stars mean an attack on the faithful covenant community in Israel then, that was before the birth of Christ, since the 12 stars in verse 1 represent the heavenly identification of the true, the faithful Israel. That's who was being persecuted and suffering. And we find in this verse that the dragon doesn't just want to attack God's people, he wants to destroy and devour the Messiah himself once the woman Israel here in the beginning gives birth. Think of all the ways the devil tried throughout the life and ministry of Jesus to devour him, to get rid of him, um, his temptation, his suffering, all of these things. As here in verse 5, if you'll notice, what? look at verse 5, his whole life and ministry, that of Jesus, are summed up in one verse. Here in verse 5, at the cross, it looks like the dragon has succeeded In devouring Israel's child. But the resurrection snatched Jesus out of nowhere from death and the power of the devil. We know that this vision reveals a snapshot of all this. Because of the summation we have in verse 5, Christ's entire life and ministry are given in one line. His birth, his destiny to kingship, his fulfillment of all of it by ascending to God's throne where he begins his resurrected ministry. Right, we're, we're very often given snapshots of Jesus' accomplishments in the New Testament. John 13:3, 16:28, Romans 1, 13, and 14, 1 Timothy 3, 16. We've even seen these types of summaries of all that Jesus accomplished in Revelation itself before we get here. 1, 5, 1, 17, and 18, 2, 8. Focusing primarily on His death and resurrection. This male child that is born, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, which is what Jesus is doing right now. That's why the world looks the way it does, because right now he's ruling with a rod of iron. He's the one prophesied to do just that in Psalm 2, 7 through 9, right? The savage efforts of this dragon culminated at the cross. That was the worst the dragon will ever be allowed to do. Where it appeared, it literally appeared... He had succeeded because Jesus literally bodily died; he was devoured. You don't get worse than killing the Messiah. But then, rather than being destroyed by the dragon's attack, this child is caught up to God and to His throne, in allusion to His resurrection and His ascension, according to Revelation two twenty-seven. We aren't waiting for Christ to rule with a rod of iron in the future. Texts like this tells us the resurrected and ascended Christ has already received the rod of iron, prophesied of him in Psalm 2. And again in Revelation two twenty-seven. here in verse 5, he's clearly caught up in reigning. Christ is referred to as the male son here to show that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. This prophecy of his ascent taking place after his death tells us the prophecy of God's Messianic Son began to be fulfilled then when Jesus ascended to the Father. The vision skips the period between His birth and ascension because He began to rule in a more formal sense than before which was the purpose for being born in the first place. So Revelation 19.15 affirms that the prophecy of Psalm 2.7-8 will be consummated in fulfillment in Christ. At the end of the age. The inaugurated fulfillment of which we read here in verse five is confirmed by Revelation two, twenty-six to twenty-eight, where Jesus himself affirmed that he has already received the prophetic authority spoke of in Psalm two from his Father. In Acts thirteen, thirty-three, and Hebrews one, two to six, Hebrews five, five, we find that the New Testament sees the prophecy of his kingly birth. Fulfilled in his resurrection and ascension. The initial fulfillment here means that just as in ancient times, when the dragon that was, say, Egypt, was defeated at the Red Sea, the dragon has been defeated again. This time, by the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. In verse 6, the woman flees from the dragon into the wilderness after her son is delivered. And beginning now, from first verse 6 onward, The woman represents not just the faithful of the Old Testament period, but the whole community of faith. The messianic community living in this post-verse 5 world. Post-resurrection, post-ascension age. Notice, when you think about that, notice that from now on, she's on the earth. She's not pictured in heaven since she represents the true people of God on the earth. Fleeing into the wilderness clearly recalls when Israel fled into the wilderness and was protected and nourished by God Exodus 16:32 Deuteronomy 2:7 was the same for Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings 17 and 19:3 to 8 the same for Moses in Exodus 2:15 who both in Revelation 11 if you remember Moses and Elijah symbolize the church in 11:5 through 6 that this vision means to make this parallel between Israel in the wilderness and now the church in the wilderness in verses 6 and 14 will be seen in the two wings of the great eagle on which the woman is taken into the wilderness. Those words tell us or remind us of God's care for Israel and her journey there after the exodus. Same wording. The woman fleeing into the wilderness refers to the end-time exodus of God's people, the restoration when true Israel returns in faith to the Lord and will again be protected and nourished by Him in the wilderness. In fact, Hosea 2.15 The prophet explicitly compares the end-time wilderness expectation to the day when she, Israel, came up from the land of Egypt. Here in verse 6, the messianic community of Jesus is beginning to experience the end-time protection of God in the wilderness after his ascension. That's where we are. Though that community experiences tribulation in the world At the same time, their covenant relationship with God is spiritually protected and nourished as they continue to fulfill the Old Testament promises of Israel's restoration. The wilderness itself doesn't protect, right? But that's the place where divine protection occurs. Even in the wilderness, the dragon's efforts still threaten the saints physically. But God protects them there. It's not a physical protection that keeps them from all harm. All we need to do is look around the world to understand that. But it is God's spiritual protection that keeps them from being deceived later in verses 15 through 17. The wilderness is another image that's um, in chapter 12 uh, identical to the sanctuary in 11.1. And the tabernacle later in 13.6. Since... All three are attacked during this same time period, 1260 days, three and a half years, same amount of time. And all three are metaphors of spiritual protection. So the woman is also like the two witnesses in chapter 11, since both suffer physically but are protected spiritually by the wilderness for her, by the sanctuary for them. Same image, same picture, just different Paintings of it, but even there in the wilderness, danger remains, just as it did in the wilderness for Israel also. Right in Deuteronomy eight, fifteen and sixteen, Moses writes that he led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents. That sounds red, doesn't it? He fed you with manna that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you at your end. Right. Your latter days, maybe. The twelve hundred and sixty days have now been established as the time of tribulation, predicted by Daniel 7.25 and 12.7, that begins at Christ's ascension and continues until his return. Of all the time stamps John uses, the three and a half years in verse 6 provides the clearest identification of the fact that this number has you know, temporal set boundaries. Here, this limited age in chapter 12 clearly extends from the resurrection of Christ in verse 5, to his final appearance in chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. She has a place prepared by God. That's the same wording for the temple in the New Testament. Matthew 24, 15. It was used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, 40 times for the sanctuary, this place prepared by God. This place is an invisible right, spiritual geographical area of security. Just like that of the actual temple back in 11, 1 and 2. The church at Ephesus was warned of what? In chapter 2, verse 5, that an unrepentant spirit would result in Christ removing their lampstand from its place in his heavenly temple. They would not have his spiritual protection provided by that temple. Even that word where, modifying the place in the middle of verse 6. Points us to other places in revelation where that word is used to introduce symbolic realms of divine protection like in, in twelve fourteen or fourteen four or of satanic danger or satan's presence in two thirteen eleven eight and twenty verse ten Remember Jesus prepares a place for us in John fourteen two and three that place being his father 's house where he will be with us again following his death. And resurrection. I think the place God prepares is actually the place of His presence and of our dwelling with Him even in this world. Vulnerable to danger, absolutely, but protected spiritually now and for eternity. The text doesn't, I don't believe the text lets us jump from the resurrection in verse five right over the age of the six, uh, of of the church in verse six, excuse me, to the time of Ethnic Israel's revival and a great tribulation which comes right before the second coming. This would mean, if that was the case, that it's ethnic Israel that is protected from the dragon in the wilderness and not the church. There's no evidence here for such a huge gap in time between 5 and 6. We would have to read that into the text to come to that conclusion rather than drawing from it and what we see there. To read the text naturally here, is to see verse 6 following immediately from verse 5. There are times in Revelation where there's a clear chronological shift, but the text also bears out the same reading in the parallel of 12:10 and 12:11 through 17 and back in 7:10 through 11 and 7:13 and 14. All of these texts focus on aspects of the work of Christ and its immediate consequences in the life of the church. The same is true, I believe, in verses 5 and 6. So, it's not what we're maybe used to hearing probably. But there are undeniable implications in Scripture of this inner relationship between faithful Israel and the church. They are there. They're all through Scripture. In this text, John presents a picture of the woman giving birth to the male child and then fleeing into the wilderness. Think about, just think for a minute about how many parallels there are in Scripture between faithful Israel, the remnant, and the church. For example, the ones given earlier from Isaiah and Hosea. Just think about Paul and Peter's language throughout the New Testament. In other words, we cannot properly understand one without the other. right? We we can't properly understand faithful Israel without the church. We can't properly understand the church without faithful Israel. And beloved, if that's true, think about what the depth of that inner relationship might mean. When, when we, if we just call it replacement, we're, we're missing what is happening. That's a whole other view of scripture, capital R, capital T, replacement theology. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the fulfillment of what God has always been saying. When we draw lines then of division between Israel and the church, faithful Israel and the church in the new covenant age. Are we failing to understand how the church is the heir in Scripture to faithful Israel and prophetically fulfills its role in the Great Commission? Do we understand the lack of connection between the faithful Israel represented here in twelve one through six and those who say they are Jews and are not back in two nine and three nine? That's possible. That's something that happens. There are Jews who say they are Jews and they're not because Paul has clarified for us what a Jew is. A Jew is the name for a child of a covenant child of God, regardless of what nation they're from. That's been established in the New Testament clearly by the time we get to Revelation. What do we think that means now, beloved? Especially since Paul again has Completely clarified these terms for us. Clarified what a Jew is, and it has nothing to do with ethnicity. In light of Christ's victorious work. Beloved, I believe that God's true people are in the wilderness right now. We're in exile. Remember? Peter even calls us this. Exile sojourners in this world. And in both its Old Testament and New Testament forms, these verses speak of the wilderness As a place of being protected by God, but also of difficulty and therefore complexity. Yes, God protects his people there, but it's also a place of danger for his people. How might we find the place of God's presence in the midst of a hostile world? What what are the ways we could grasp that we are in the wilderness? Yes, but God is with us. Think of the texts that brings to mind. That you'll never be left. You'll never be forsaken. He is with us always, even to the end of the age. When he doesn't have to tell us that anymore because we'll see him, right? What then, if that's the case, if the case of God's people in the world today is that we're in the wilderness, vulnerable to danger and suffering, but also protected spiritually, indestructibly by God, What kind of safety and security has God actually promised to provide for us? Right. What then can we legitimately ask for as his people remaining in this world? Beloved. We should not expect to avoid serious tribulation. Even if even if we having a, a pre-tribulation view of a rapture, beloved, even if we have the rapture happening before all these things take place in us, even if we have that, why do you think we're being spared when we are the church from all this horror when the rest of the church in the world, for the most part, is actually going through it right now? Right now. How do we account for that in our in time theology? Surely we can't think that It's because this is America, and America is special. Surely we don't believe that. America is going to get burned to a crisp, like the rest of the earth's real estate. That's what's going to happen. It's no more or less deserving of judgment than any other place in the world. And beloved, I want to go back to something I I, I started talking about, I think, last week. One of the reasons that we aren't suffering is because we're fighting the battle for truth with the enemy's weapons. Our passion to align ourselves, I think that's the way to see Christianity advances to align ourselves with earthly leaders and governments and kingdoms so that we might impose Christianity in a wholesale way on our society. Then it's easy for us and we don't have to fight or deal with pressure, right? That's what we elect them to do. Let them fight. Our passion for that, if that's what we have tonight, our passion for that ignores the fact that by doing that, we're playing right into the enemy's hands. What do we know about the places of authority in the world? What are they actually? They are the Satan's playground. That's where he sets up shop to impose his frustrated but powerful will on the earth. Through authority, through the government. That's what's happening behind the governments and Authorities in the world he's going to be loosed at the end to carry out his all-out war on the church by using these governments that we are so dependent on for our Christianity being intact The devil he's, we're just playing right into his hands I know what we'll do so that we don't lose our witness we will elect officials that won't Let us lose our witness beloved Without wanting to get too conspiratorial I don't know how much it matters anymore What we vote I'm not saying don't vote. I'm not saying that. I will, as far as I know, continue to vote. I'm saying we're learning all the time if we're watching that I I don't know what a vote means now. I really don't. But beloved, that's probably part of the plan. You know that, that. Of course, that's happening in the seats of power. That's where Satan is trying to carry out his will on the earth. We don't need the governing authorities on our side, beloved. It is nice that they are right now. Absolutely. But I wonder if it's going to backfire. I can't help but wonder that. Right? We don't need them to be his witnesses. We don't need them to be his ambassadors. Both parties compromise our witness, beloved. It's it's unavoidable. Yes, there are better things in one than the other. No question. I'm saying at the end of the day, these are worldly created, worldly establishments. And God's people, no matter what country we live in, no matter what rights are afforded, cannot get into bed with them. We can't. If we lie down with dogs, we get fleas. And we have fleas, beloved. This world and all its forms are passing away. Right? We all agree on this. This world, in all its forms, is passing away. So what do we say in light of a text like this? Look to Jesus and come away from this world. Come away from it. Don't, don't rely on it. Don't depend on it. It doesn't mean don't live, don't work, don't save, don't invest. No, 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 no. I'm just saying, don't put much stock in it, beloved. Beloved. John writes, to encourage us to persevere in our witness, even amidst the cosmic conflict between God and the devil that brings us difficulty and persecution continues in this world. But come away with him. Come away from it. Beloved, literally, everything you can see right now with your eyes is passing away, including each other. Don't look to what is seen. Look to Christ. Yes, the devil rages. That's because he's beaten. Right? Oh, he's dangerous. He roams like a roaring lion. Make no mistake. He hasn't been finally, fully chained. He still is roaming the earth. No question. But beloved, he's whipped. All right. And we're not doing that to pump ourselves up or to brag. I want it to point us to Christ. It doesn't matter how the world rages. It it doesn't matter. It might hurt, literally. But, beloved, Jesus said this is what would happen. Look at the intricacy of his design, regardless of how we interpret the individual pieces of it. Beloved, we all agree on the ultimate design. So look to Christ. Come away from the world. Come away from the world. Let go of it. It's passing away. Christ lasts forever.